Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. Pastor Dave is not here today, and uh, neither is Elder Chris. Um, as Eugene mentioned, they're in Flagstaff for the uh, church plant launch service for One Tribe Church, um, our church plant with the Thrive Ministry. So what I wanted to do today is have us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 42 to the end of the chapter, and then I'm going to pray that for One Tribe, so that what happens in Flagstaff Uh, would be something very similar to what happened in Jerusalem. I'm going to read from the New King James. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful as a church family to come and to be with you. We are grateful that whatever happens here in Hoffman Estates, even now as we seek your face and your hand of favor, things can be different. Your spirit can be moving and empowering in faraway places like Flagstaff and even other parts of the world where today your family, the church, the body of Christ gathers to worship. Father, we're grateful for the work that you're doing in Flagstaff through one tribe. We are grateful for the way that you have worked in the leaders of this ministry, in the students who are part of this ministry. And our prayer, Father, for this church, this group of people that you have placed at this time in that area, that together they would continue in your word. Father, I would ask that you would give them a hunger for your word, not just to hear it preached, Not just to read it, not just to study it, but to live it. May the one tribe church be marked by lives of obedience to your word. Father, we'd also pray that as they get together, that they would be a fellowship, that they would be a community, that they would be a family. And for some of us, when we think of family, we think of chaos and dysfunction, but We ask that that family, one tribe, would be a family, your family, gathering together in the unity of your spirits, that in heart and mind they will be loving one another, serving one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, because they care deeply for one another. 
Father, I would ask that in the midst of their fellowship, that sense of unity would keep them together, even in the midst of difficult times. That when struggles come or circumstances become difficult, that together they walk as a family. Father, we would ask that they would share their lives. They would share their lives with each other and share their lives with their community. Father, we would ask that through them that you would do things that are miraculous. Father, we would ask that you would do things that would show and reveal that you're God, that you are active, that you are involved, and that you are moving, that you transform lives, that you draw people to yourself because you care and because you love. Father, we would ask that your hand of favor would be upon this church. We would ask that you would grow this church, not in numbers, not in numbers only, but as disciples. That the people who are members and participate in this church will be followers of Jesus. That they will love him with their whole heart, their whole soul, their whole mind, their whole strength. And that you would grow that church to be a healthy church because your spirit is alive and active. And may what happens there grow beyond even their own ministry. And in the midst of that, Father, we would ask that you would keep them humble, that they would recognize that whether they're planting seeds or watering seeds, they are nothing because you are the one who causes the growth. Father, we ask that they would abide in you, live in you, remain in you, that they might bear fruit and fruit that lasts. That this church is your family. It's not just a part of Thrive, but it is your family. And we pray that through your family, your kingdom will grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Reading all the versions this week, and they're all pretty good, but I, I felt this was the clearest, at least to me, which might say things about myself, but at least it was clear. It reads this way. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one wrong, doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. I was thinking of coming up with a, 
sort of Forrest Gump type of uh, saying to get the thing started. And the only thing I came up with is that following Jesus is like riding a bike. You know, it's nothing like life is a box of chocolate. You never know what you're going to get. But I couldn't figure it out. But I did come up with two pictures, I think, with, which illustrate it. The first one that I have is like this. And I think I sound funny when I do this. I, sound, I mean, I sound funny anyway, but it... Okay, great. I don't know about you, but I believe this is a picture of how I live the Christian life. And uh, what I mean by that is, man, it just seems like it's an uphill struggle all the time. Uh, no matter what it is or no matter where I'm at, every once in a while there's these bright sunny days and everything seems right, but they seem very rare. And so it seems to me like all I do is try to ride my bike uphill following after Jesus. What would I really like it to be like? Like that, baby. Going downhill, seeming like joy and peace and all of these things that are so much a part of what we have been told are a part of following Christ is what life really is like. And so I like this passage in Romans because I feel a lot of um, empathy perhaps for perhaps what Paul is going through. Now I know a lot of us when we think of Paul, our initial thought is, well, Paul is an apostle. He's probably so close to God. He has got it all together. And maybe he does. I'm not really sure. But I have a feeling that what he's describing here is personal experience. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you watch The Flash? Okay, forget that illustration. <laughs> make any sense describing something? I'll try it anyway. Anyway, in the, in the Flash, it's a new TV show. It's pretty interesting. And there's a, there's a guy named The Reverse Flash who's a bad guy. It's not that he goes in reverse very fast. It's just he's the opposite. They're the antithesis thereof. And uh, one day the Flash was in the situation and the reverse Flash, who's supposed to be his friend but really is his enemy, is explaining how good it feels to actually run like 600 miles an hour, which would be really cool if you could do that. And as he's explaining that, the Flash realizes what this guy is describing is his experience. This is his experience. So now he realizes this guy who is my friend is really the guy that killed my mother and he's my enemy because of the experience that he was going through was so described as so real that he goes, ah, that makes sense. So when I read Paul here and I read Romans 7, I say to myself, this sounds so much like the experience that I have as I follow Christ. That uphill ride where I'm trying to do what is right, but I find that I end up doing what is wrong. And when I don't want to do what is wrong, I find out that I end up doing it anyway because there's something that pulls in me and makes me do these things that I don't want to do. Now, I don't know how many of you are scholars, but there is a little bit of, and I'm not you know, like saying you're not smart people, by the way. But there's two camps here, and some people say what Paul is describing is the experience of those people who don't know Christ. And someone else, other scholars say, this is the experience of someone who follows Christ. I think it, it is the latter. And we're not going to get into that, but I just wanted to make that sure that's clear. Either way, whether it is before Christ or after Christ, both of them are a similar experience in each and every way. So as we move forward, I just want to talk about two things that I think Paul would communicate to us today, if I understand him correctly, about what we need to get from this passage. And the first one is this. How do we get past this ever-ending fight? It's this. We cry out in desperation. We cry out in desperation. Paul states this problem very simply. He says this in verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. 
I want to do what is good, but I don't. I want to do what is wrong. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. And then verse 21, I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Paul has a problem. Paul wants to do what is right and good, but he can't. For instance, uh, this Thursday, uh, my small group, uh, me and the uh, Indian brothers who have now invited me to be a part of their group, I, I feel you know, very warmed by that. And then Eric, too. Well, we went to see a movie entitled War Room. And if you've seen the movie Courageous, uh, if you've seen the movie Facing the Giants, it's the same guys. And War Room is, is a movie about prayer. And it's kind of, and I'm not going to you know, spoil it for you, but the idea is that there's this older woman who is a prayer warrior who is so immersed in God that she wants to train others in which to help them to pray. And she has a little prayer closet. And uh, she encourages this woman that she is discipling to develop her own prayer closet. So leaving the movie on that Thursday, I'm kind of excited because I'm thinking to myself, wow, it would be really cool one day, you know, to not only have a prayer closet, but be the type of person who can lead somebody in developing their prayer life and be very powerful in that. So I'm thinking, man, tomorrow I'm going to start praying an hour a day. I'm just, I'm going to do it, man. And, uh, and you know what happened, right? I prayed for two hours. I was shocked. Okay, I lied. I I didn't pray at all because I'm too busy doing all these things, this ministry, that ministry. I mean, Thursday night, I really want to do this. This is the thing I want to do. I'm excited. I'm encouraged. I am going to do it. I'm going to get accountability partners. And there's got a little card that says get 31 people to pray for you. And I'm going to get 31 people to pray for me. I'm going to do all these things. And the next day, it's uh, this meeting, uh, that meeting, and it's this and it's that. And I find out the thing that I wanted to do, I did not do because there's something in me that really doesn't want to do it. I love God's word. I love God's law. I love God. But there's something at war within me that doesn't allow me to do the things that I want to do. Or sometimes even when I struggle with things, I tell myself when I get in the car, I am going to be patient on the ride home. You know what happens, right? It doesn't take me long before I get on I-90. And if you've been getting on I-90 from Barrington, you know that, man, you've got to get on right away. Because if you don't, these other guys that are doing 70 or 80, and you have to get that quick, I lose it. Because there's some grandma that's either going too slow or some truck driver that's going too fast that really bothers me. See, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get angry. I just want to get home. I want to see my family. That's it. But it takes less than a minute for my life. To go from honoring and worshiping God to praising. Isn't it amazing? I could be in the car saying, God, I love this. This is great. And somebody does something and immediately a vileness rises and anger comes out. I don't want to do that. I want to be the kind of person that says, hey, that's okay. We're all in a hurry. It's good. That's not what happens. That's the problem that Paul is talking about. He says, listen, I want to do what is right and good can't and i don't want to do these wrong things but you know what that's what happens anyway paul goes on though he gives us what's going on behind this problem he says this (coughs) verses 21 and 22 i have discovered this principle of life excuse me (coughs) that when i want to do what is right i inevitably do what is wrong i love god's law with all of my heart see what paul's saying here is this i struggle with sin 
Now, I know that we would like to think someone like Paul as an apostle or even the pastors of today really don't struggle with sin. I think that people give a little bit too much credence to how good we can be. Now, I'm not saying that we're filthy, rotten, terrible people. We're taking money out of the offering and we're taking vacations. I'm not saying that. I think the pastors that are here are actually men of integrity. But what I am saying is do not deny the fact that we do have our own struggles with sin. Paul had a struggle with sin, and he's telling the Romans, I still struggle with sin. I want to follow God, but there's this thing in me, this sin still living in me, that just doesn't want to follow God. And so there's this sort of war that is raging on within me, because what are his next words? I love God's word, God's law, with all my heart. Now, people who don't follow Jesus don't say that. People who do say, yes, I am so in love with God's word. I am so in love with God's law. I am so in love with God. But he's admitting his struggle is that there's something within him that is like a titanic struggle where he's fighting that he wants to love and serve God, that he wants to have the desires, the passions, the heart, the fullness of God, and yet there's something in him that says, I really don't want that because what I want is the fullness of sin. To enjoy that which is visible, because sometimes the things of God are invisible. They're not as tangible. You can't taste them sometimes. You can't touch them sometimes. But sin, man, that's right there. And it's instant gratification, because sometimes what God asks of us is to wait to experience the joy. And so the struggle is, this is what's going on in me. I want to serve God, but I just can't. And I think Paul's expressing this even as an apostle that he's struggling because there's something going on within his heart that is making him cry out. So what does he say? He makes this plea. In verse 24, he says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. And I like the New American Standard because the the New American Standard says, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Now, in, in your struggles with sin, have you ever gotten to a place where you do something and you feel really bad afterwards? Uh, let me speak to parents. Have you ever yelled at your kids? I know many of you don't. But have you, have you ever yelled at your kids and afterwards what you thought was going to be really cool because you're going to set them straight, right? But when you walk away from having set them straight, you feel terrible. Am I the only person that feels that? Please just raise your hands just for the lie of it if you want to lie. But I, when I do that, I would yell at them and I think, man, I, I told them so. I got them. You know, you want a little bomb with that burn kind of thing. And then you go, oh, wait a minute. What did I just do? What did I just do? I just destroyed a kid. There's no joy in that, you big dummy. That's what I tell myself. Don't call me a big dummy, but that's what I tell myself. There's no joy in that. What a wretched man I feel like when I do that. I read this book, um, The Way, what is, I don't even remember what the name was. It's How We Love, isn't it? What's the name of the book, Janet? How We Love? By the whatever, Yurkovich's, not the guy that's a football player, but somebody else. But it's a very interesting book. And in the book, it says, you know what? Like, for instance, when your kids cry, when my kids used to cry, I used to tell them, come on, man, you're not bleeding. If you're not bleeding, you can't cry. So stop crying. <laughs> Pretty good parenting, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it isn't. I read this book, and they're like, you know what your kid needs at that moment? Is comfort. 
your child needs comfort. So um, there was an instance where, where Kaylee started crying, and uh, she just usually when she starts crying, she doesn't want me to touch her. I said, you know what, I'm sorry, come here, I'm going to hug you. And I didn't make her cry, by the way, in this instance. And uh, as she's there, she's crying. I said, you know what, honey, right now, I, I think you probably feel sad, right? And I don't know what it was, but something just broke in her. And for the first time that she actually came to me in the midst of her tears and let me comfort her. That felt a lot better than telling her, suck it up. You're not bleeding. You shouldn't cry. That's what I heard. I heard that when I was growing up. And I should pass on the great heritage that I received from my parents. And it was a great heritage. Do you know what I'm saying? And then, after I did that, we went on a spring break vacation and there was a father, because we went to Timber Ridge Lodge, and we're in the Lazy River thing or the pool or something, and, and this father was angry at his two-year-old. The kid was crying. And my guess was, like, the kid went underwater and got scared, and he was, he was like, yelling at her. You know, like, as parents, and I don't know if you do this. I, I think I'm pretty good at this. But you can yell at your kids in public where it kind of looks like you're not really yelling at them. But if someone does the same thing, they know that you're yelling. He was at you You know? And I don't know what he was saying, but, you know, and what did the kid do? Two-year-old kid stopped crying, right? No, the kid goes even more because, and I wanted to go up to him and say, excuse me, sir, um, your daughter just needs comfort. Why don't you hug her right now? Right? Well, I, I was going to do that, and I really thought God was leading me to do that, but he was like about 6'3", 280 at least. And I said, well, I hope God does something in that guy's life, and we went on our way. But, but here's what I'm trying to get. The whole point is this. The idea is there's something in us, there's something in us, that is fighting and is struggling. And though we love God, it fights against that. And the struggle that usually happens is the sinful side wins out. And we do the things that we don't want to do. And the things that we're actually supposed to do, we don't end up doing. And I think that's Paul's struggle. So Paul's making this plea. He says, wretched man that I am. I feel horrible. It's like a parent who yells at their kids, I feel miserable. This is horrible, rotten, stinking, terrible. Who's going to save me from all of this? And so what does he do? He cries out in desperation. He's basically saying, I have no power to deal with this. Who will set me free from this life that is dominated by sin and death? I am stuck. This is my plea. And I think God wants to bring us to a place where we cry out in desperation and say, I cannot do this. I cannot hunger for your word like I should. I cannot pray like I should. I don't share my faith like I should. I don't even want to. I just want to be left alone. I want to go home. I want to watch my TV. I want to live in car. I can't do those things. And I can't stop yelling at my kids. And I can't stop yelling at my wife. And I can't stop getting angry for this. And I can't stop doing this. And this whole thing leads us to cry out and say, God, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. So I was thinking to myself, how does this work in my own life? And I came to a realization. And here's something I think is really important for us to understand. Don't call your sin my issues, my stuff, or my personality. Don't call sin my issues, my stuff, or my personality. Because all it does is lead to rationalization. Well, the reason I'm angry is because when I grew up, that's all I saw. Mind you, I am not minimizing that. I'm not saying, well, if you saw anger, get over it. I'm not saying that. I know it is difficult to get over that. 
What I am saying is when that happens in our lives and we're hurting ourselves, we're hurting our spouse, we're hurting our children or whoever else, instead of saying that's my personality, what we need to do is call it what it is. It's sin. Because the reality is, even though that sin still dominates or lives within us, as we're going to see later on, Christ has set us free. So don't call it your stuff or my issues. That's really cool. You know, sometimes even in process group, we sit around and say, I have issues. Which suddenly makes it sound like really, oh, you know, I'm not really that bad. I just have issues, right? Because I got stuff to work through. It's my personality. I'm sarcastic. I know you guys don't realize that. But I've been known to be sarcastic. It's my personality. That's the way I grew up. That's the way I learned how to be funny, to be sarcastic. It doesn't matter if you hurt people. This is my personality. I have issues. I never learned how to resolve conflict when I was growing up. I never learned what it was like to be a husband and a father. I mean, I could see my daddy did a really good job of that, but he never sat down and said, hey, these are the things. You know, that's my issues, my stuff, my things that I have to work through. No, it's not. It's my sin. It's my sin. And the reality is, is a lot of time, I let sin win because I want it to. Because I think that I will feel better in the end. That everything will be cool if I just do that and express myself. But it's sin. If you call it sin, it leads us to cry out in desperation. It's no more rationalization. It's desperation. I am in bad shape. So I started thinking about myself this week. And you start going through the seven deadly sins, and, there's, and I think I, I slaughter every one of them. But I started thinking, envy. You know, envy. I mean, I've been in pastoral ministry for almost um, 30 years. And I think to myself, you know, at this time, shouldn't I be on speaking tours? You know what I mean? Shouldn't, right? I'm wondering why you're laughing so much. <laughs> Am I that bad? Come on. <laughs> no, 30 years? Come on, man. I should be on speaking tours. I should be traveling the country, going internationally, sharing my 30 years of wisdom with other people and with other pastors and telling them. And I never get invited anywhere. In fact, in, on Facebook this week, there was this, I don't know, I don't even know how I, this person got on my Facebook, but there was a church that I spoke at about 25 years ago. And I was like, man, I used to speak to Chuck and they never invited me back. Envy, you know, other people are going nationally, internationally, and I love my family, but it'll be really cool, you know, because like, when you travel, like, hey, Pastor Dave's in Flagstaff, man, he's important, right? Oh, Pastor Frank, he's in China speaking, whoa, right? Envy, the reality, I mean, I'd like to say I deserve it because I've been so faithful for so long, but the reality is it is envy, it is sin, call it what it is, not an issue, anger whether it's driving or my kids or my wife or what have you, watching TV, I call it competitiveness. I'm competitive. See, that's the key. I'm, com- I'm not angry. I'm competitive. So the names that I call these guys in sports is because I'm competitive. If you read my Facebook this week, you will see that I rejoice in the fact that Oklahoma City, um, Miami, and Indiana did not make the playoffs because I don't like any of them. Because they let the heat win. Let it go, man. It is so trivial. It is sin. It is anger. It is bitterness. I feel, I'll be honest, I feel it. I feel it. I feel that anger. But I want to say what? I'm competitive. You know, last Sunday we sat down in small group and uh, we had to share this masks and we we're talking about how competitive I am. And uh, Phil was there. Is Phil Lee here today? Oh, they're on retreat. Okay, good. 
Right. He's like, man, I've seen you competitive. Do you remember those games? I was like, well, no, 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 you have to remember that. But as, you know, all week long, I've been thinking about this one game we played, and I was the pitcher, and I lost the game for us because I stink. But there's one point where this one guy was in the batter's box, and he said, I'm not even swinging because this guy can't get the ball over the plate. And I was like, man, I wish I could pitch a fastball high and inside right now. Okay, this is while I'm pitching, right? Or I'm going to do this other thing that's really going to irk him and tick him off. And so yesterday, while I'm cleaning my garage, I couldn't get this out of my head because I wanted to relive it. And my, my thoughts were like, I wish I would have went to that guy because we've played this team before and they stink. But I was on a worse team this year. And I wanted to go through and say, you've never made the playoffs because you guys stink. And you're going to take a walk? And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this was three years ago. Let it go. It's my issues. I'm competitive. It's my stuff. It's my personality. If you're going to play a game, you play to win. You don't just play. No, it's anger. It's bitterness. It's sin. It's baseball. It means absolutely nothing, but I make it everything. It's wrong. It's sin. I don't want to do that. I wanted to think about other things, but I couldn't get past it. You see what I'm saying? We rationalize all of these things that we do. You know, like, I work hard and I make a lot of money because I want my family to be safe. I want them to be comfortable. I want them to be able to go to the best colleges or I want them to be able to do this or I want to do that. And we rationalize that without saying it's greed or gluttony. I struggle with gluttony. You know, I like to eat and I comfort myself with, hey, you know what? I just had an argument with my wife. I need to go to McDonald's and have some ice cream. What I'm really saying is, I just want to indulge. Do you get what I'm saying? What Paul is saying here is he's not going, hey, guys, listen, uh, verse 21 goes this way. I have discovered this principle of life. I have stuff. I have a personality. I have issues. Oh, well. No, what he says is in verse 24, oh, what a miserable person I am because he calls sin what it is which is sin, and he cries out in desperation. He says, who will set me free from this? And this leads me to say the second thing today. Because if we just leave it here, we've missed the point. We need to trust in Christ's finished work. Look what he says, verse 25. Thank God. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind... I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. In other words, if it's not really dealt with, it's not going to get better. Now, Paul isn't saying, hey, get an accountability. Paul isn't saying, accountability partner, Paul isn't saying, read the word more. He isn't saying, pray more, go out and show your faith. What he's saying is, to deal with the sin issue that is inside of you, that seems to hold on so tightly, Just cry in desperation and say, I need help, and then trust. So we're not really doing anything other than saying, God, I need help, and then saying, God, help me. God, I need help. God, help me. Because what he's saying is, Jesus has set us free from that. (coughs) Romans chapter (coughs) chapter 8, verse 1 says this. So now, there is no condemnation For those who belong to Jesus Christ. You're not condemned. You're not condemned. But you know what's even better than that? Verse 2. And because you belong to him, who is Jesus, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. He can say, thanks be to God because I'm free. 
not because of something I've done, but because of what Jesus has already done. <clears throat> Jesus has initiated the process. Jesus has stepped into my life, and he said, here is freedom from this sin that holds on to you and won't let go if you trust me, if you trust what I've done, if you let the Spirit live in you. Let him have access to those deep corners of your life, those struggles that you have, so that he might set you free. Because what is missing in Romans chapter 7 is a person. Not once does Paul refer to the Spirit. And I think what happens in Romans 7 is that Paul saying this, when I try to live the Christian life, when I try to follow Jesus by myself, I'm that guy riding the bike uphill every moment, finding out that it is a struggle and it is difficult, and I just can't do it, and I give up, wretched man that I am. But when he gets to Romans chapter 8, he says, but ah, Jesus has set me free, and his spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is the spirit that now lives in me, and suddenly we're the second biker, and we're going downhill. It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with sin. It doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle with difficulties. It doesn't mean that everything is going to be great and grand and wonderful, but what it means now is that you no longer have to fight this fight. Oh, that's not going to help, Joy. Thank you, though. It's uh, more uh, stuff that's stuck here. If anybody has Mucinex and they want to give it to me for free, that's probably what I need. (coughs) I've been doing this for weeks. (coughs) Although my wife will be happy to say that at least I'm coughing in my sleeve rather than coughing all over the house. I digress. (coughs) Freedom. We have been set free. Here's the problem. Not that we have been set free, but do you really believe it? That's why I think what Paul would communicate to us is not that you must do freedom, but must believe in freedom. Because the struggle is not something that you can overcome in and of yourself. You need help. Which is why I really believe that Paul is saying, I am miserable without the Spirit's active involvement in my life. But when I get to Romans 8, man, I realize I am free. That I can actually do the things that God wants me to do, and I can do them with freedom. And I can avoid the things that God doesn't want me to do, and I can do them with a sense of freedom. I remember when I first became a follower of Christ, I can remember all the things that I used to do, and to be able to go, wow, I really don't have a desire for that. It just is not the same thing, you know? It's, it's kind of like, uh, to be honest with you, to, to use food, which is a, a problem sometimes for me, is, you know, I used to love White Castle. And it's like some of you are like, really? Who loves White Man, the pickles and the onions and whatever else they had in that little thin slice of meat and the nice soft bread, right? Man, it's good. But you know now, with like Smash Brothers... And meatheads, I don't have a desire for White Castle anymore. (laughs) It's not the same thing, right? Now, think about this. If we can do that for food, how much more if the Spirit of God lives in us when we look at those things and go, man, I really, really don't want that. You know, when I 
when I read that book, How We Love or whatever it is, and, and get the title from me later, and I realized, wow, there is a, actually a different way of parenting and that you can actually comfort your kids because that's what they're really looking for. And if you don't comfort them, how it affects their future lives, man, I don't want to go back to yelling. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean I don't yell sometimes, but I don't want to go there. I'd rather have them come alongside and know that their dad is with them in the midst of their pain and their difficulty. That is so much better. And when you taste the so much better, the so much less doesn't really taste like much anymore. And so what I think Paul is saying is, listen, I struggle, but man, when I really think about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how I'm actually free to obey God, this is so much better. Because Romans 8 is going to be like a triumph all the way throughout. You know, he's going to get to a place where he says the world is a mess. But you know what? One day God is going to redeem all that. And it is going to be awesome. So much better. Freedom. Freedom. And it comes when we are trusting Christ. What he has done for us. And in the power of his spirit, letting that overwhelm us. Now, it's not going to be an easy process. It's not like the movie that we watched on Thursday. You know, it was kind of like they had struggles, marital difficulties, and it seemed like two days later everything was wonderful because they started praying like crazy. That's a movie. The reality is this is a lifestyle that takes time for us to grasp. Let me finish with three things. It's going to be a know, do, and believe. First of all, I think we need to know this. To follow Jesus is constantly to be in conflict. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, written by the Apostle Paul, says this, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. What has Paul just said? In two verses, he just summarized Romans 7 and 8. I probably should have done that and we would have been out of here earlier, right? There is a constant battle within us that is fighting and struggling for control and domination. The sin says we want to run the place. We know what is best. We want to enjoy life. We want to have fun. We want to express ourselves. And the Spirit says, you know what? Those are good things if they're God things, but what you're suggesting aren't God things, so they're not good things. So we're going to be at constant war between those two. And I say that because I don't want you to leave here today thinking, hey, you know what, if I just cry out in desperation and I just trust God, my whole life is going to be set. I think this is why people who follow God all throughout history struggle because there's these two things that are battling within them and all too frequently we forget that we have the Spirit within us giving us life and instead we rest upon our own personality, our own willpower, our own strength to try and get us to follow Jesus and we fail. And Paul says, don't do that. Trust Christ. Let the Spirit Live in you. So know this. To follow Jesus is to constantly be in conflict. But the second thing is do this. Call sin, sin. Call it what it is. Stop calling it something else. Stop calling it something else. 
John writes in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness or all wickedness. Just call it sin, man. Don't call someone else, something else. It's not an issue. It's not a stuff. It's a personality. It's none of that. And trust me, there are issues out there. There's stuff out there. There's a ton of junk that exists in our lives. But the Spirit of God... We are still called to do what is right in God's eyes. If I had grown up under alcoholic parents, and they were not, and I learned from them anger and striking out, and that alcohol solves your problems, and it makes everything better when it really doesn't, and I taught my kids that, I cannot turn to my parents and say, it is your fault. In some ways, it would have been if they were like that. But the reality is, instead of me looking to my parents and saying, you taught me wrong, I need to look at myself and call it what it is. If I follow Jesus, it is sin. My anger, my lack of forgiveness, my striking out, my doing whatever it is that is wrong, is wrong. Call it sin. I think that's one of the things about the beauty of the body of Christ. We're all a mess. We are all struggling with that sinful nature. We all have some things that we might go, wow, no one will ever accept me if they found out that I did this. And if we ever got together and we started sharing stories, even if we could share them anonymously, we'd go, hey, how do they know? Or, wow, there's someone else that's just like me. Call it sin, man. There's no freedom in Christ if you call it your mess and your stuff. The freedom comes when we say, this is wrong. God, help me. And the third thing is, believe this, trust what God has already done through Jesus and what he can do through his spirit. And we read this already, but it says, So now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Believe. Believe this. Tell yourself over and over and over and over again. And if you're like me, it's going to be a constant battle. It seems sometimes when I get up in the morning, I say, God, I wish I had a million dollars. And that's my first thought. I want to get out of debt. I don't want my kids to have college debt. And, uh, and then God just goes, hey, you know what? Um, not yet or ever. Just trust. Trust. There's a lot of things that go through my mind that have these ruts that keep telling me things that I need in order to be happy. And God says, just trust. Keep telling yourself, trust. There is no condemnation. And you are free. You are free. The spirit that lives in you has set you free. There is freedom. It may not happen overnight. For some people it does. And I envy those people. But for many of us, and maybe even many of you, myself definitely included, it is an uphill struggle because we are constantly at war with something inside of us that wants to control us. And we have to trust that Jesus will do what he says, he will step in, he will free us from condemnation, and he will and has already set us free from sin's power when we call it sin and not something else. So that we might actually be like the person riding downhill on that bike going, man, this is the best thing since sliced bread. God calls us to trust. Let's pray.
thanks be to God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is no condemnation for us who belong to Christ Jesus. For as we belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed us from the power of sin and death. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.